Welcome to Behind the Mask, a podcast from Empower Sports Management, looking at the people behind the athletes and the ups and downs in their careers and what happened to them when they had to step away from the world of professional sport. I'm delighted to say our guest today is Fraser Franks, who had a lengthy career playing for some big clubs, the likes of Luton Town, AFC Wimbledon, Newport County. Fraser, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, for those who may not know too much about you, just, just, just tell us a bit about your career. Uh, it started off uh, very early at, at Chelsea's Academy. So I joined there at the age of nine, uh, stayed there until 16. <clears throat> I was never going to be good enough to play for Chelsea's first team. I was well aware of that from, from quite early on, actually. It wasn't the most confident academy kid. Um, I felt like I was always clinging on every year to get another contract, never sort of the gold medalist of the group. Um, but I got released and I ended up going to Brentford at 16 and doing my apprenticeship there. And I felt like I found my level. Brentford weren't the Brentford that you see today. They were a League Two, League One, sort of bouncing in between. Um, but I felt like I grew in confidence when I got there. Um, managed to get a professional contract, but didn't play a game for the club. I think I held the record at one point for most times on the bench without ever coming on. Uh, I don't know if anyone's broken that. Um, and then I had, to, I had to drop into non-league. So I went on trial at AFC Wimbledon. Um, did really well there and won promotion, but suffered a, a real bad uh, cruciate knee ligament injury. Had to drop down again. And probably the, one of the toughest periods was when I had to go part-time with Welling United. But one of the most enjoyable periods of my life. Um, I needed to play games and they, they gave me that platform. Uh, and from that platform, I ended up signing for Luton Town, um, going up to League Two from the conference with them. And then sort of established myself in the Football League, which is what I ultimately wanted to do and, and went on to play for Luton, Stevenage um, and Newport County before, before I ended uh, three years ago. When you had to drop down to, to semi-pro and Welling, was there, there any part of you that was, was tempted to, to give it up at that point? No, probably the opposite. Um, I saw a lot of people drop down to part-time uh, throughout my career and they'd gone on and, and sort of, they'd gone along with the part-time mentality. They started going out more, um, becoming a bit of a part-time player, you know, getting a job on the, on the building site with their dad or whatever it might be. I went the, the complete opposite. I was obsessed for that 18 months at, at Welling, trained every day as if I was a professional. So I went up the park on my own, up the gym on my own took it really, really seriously, dedicated myself. Um, yeah, and I had, a, I had a sort of inner belief in me that I would, you know, it was going to be temporary and I was going to get myself back. So, no, I was never, sort of never had it in me to give it up at that point. And obviously you mentioned it, it came to an end at Newport County, but it came to an end in rather sad and, and very sudden circumstances for you. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, very sudden. Um, you know, it was, it was uh, on, a, on a Saturday evening, was one of the biggest games where... Newport played against Man City in the FA Cup. We had a really good FA Cup run. Um, and a week later, I was in, in hospital on a, on a cardiac unit. So, yeah, it was, it was very abrupt. Um, sort of long story short, I, I suffered a cardiac issue after a game. Um, spent some time in hospital and got diagnosed with a heart condition that, that made it. Or, you know, the specialist told me it was, it was unsafe for me to carry on, you know, playing professionally. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was really sudden, not what I expected uh, at all. And yeah, it was at the age of 28. So I knew the day was going to come when I had to retire, but I planned in my head for it to be, you know, 35, 36, hopefully. How did it feel when the cardiac surgeon gave you that, that news? Uh, it was sort of drip fed to me, if I'm honest. Um, 
I went in there and I knew it was quite serious when I first went in there. Um, but there was a doctor that, that really liked his football and he'd come and sort of sit on the end of my bed and talk football with me. And he came in after a few days and said, look, just casually said, look, I've, I've seen something in your scan. And um, if it's what I think it is, it could have sort of big implications to your career. And I think when he said that a few days into my stay in hospital, I sort of, I started asking different questions. I started, started to think about what I was going to do next. Started to panic, if I'm honest. Um, and yeah, I, they, they sort of drip fed it from there. And probably a week later, um, a massive team of doctors and different specialists had, had seen me. And yeah, I think by the time they actually told me properly, I was, I was probably ready to hear it then. I assume you might have gone back to the club to say, you know, farewells. How tough is that to go into your dressing room with people who were your teammates weeks earlier and, and say farewell, goodbye, that, that, that's kind of it for me being, being part of this group? Yeah, it was, it was a strange one because, um, because it was in, I was playing for Newport County at the time. Um, I was living in Newport. Near enough, the whole team lived in a, in a mile radius. So it was a really close-knit group. One of the only places that my wife has had loads of friends with the, the other players' wives and stuff like that. Real family club. Um, but they really looked after me. They were brilliant with me. Um, so a lot of my initial worries were, you know, what am I going to do next? Um, I'd signed a two-year contract at Newport and I was a, almost a year into it. I was captain of the club. And one of the first things the chairman said to me is, look, we're going we're gonna to honour this contract. Um, so you'll be getting paid, you know, for another year. And for me, that took a massive weight off my shoulders because that was a, you know, something I, I was panicking about massively in hospital. I'd only ever earned money through playing football. Um, so that gave me the time to actually look at what, what I wanted to do next rather than sort of rush in to earn money quickly. Um, but they, you know, they, uh, they had a testimonial game for me against Chelsea. So Chelsea were really good with that as well. Um, they actually offered me a first team coaching role at Newport, um, but I didn't feel ready to go straight back in and sort of coach the players I'd just been playing with. So I didn't take that up. Um, but no, they, they couldn't have been any better with me. I absolutely love that club. How cruel did it feel that this came after, you know, we talked about you battling through part-time and battling back. You wanted to establish yourself in the Football League. You'd very much done so. And then bang, this hits you. Yeah, it did feel like that. I think I really quickly tried to turn it the other way. So when I was 16 at Brentford, you go in for a routine. I think it's every, every club in the country or every club in the EFL. You go in for a routine heart scan when you go in and sign your apprenticeship forms. Um, and I remember first day of pre-season or second day of pre-season, um, we had a team meeting and Andy Scott was the manager of Brentford at the time, uh, first team manager. And I was training with the first team at the time. And he said, right, finished the meeting. He said, right, everyone out to training. He said, Fraser, can you hang behind for a little bit? So I was what is this all about? Um, and he just said, look, you can't do anything. You can't train. You can't go in the gym until we figured out, you know, what's come up in your heart scan because it's come up that you've got an irregular heartbeat. Something's going on there. And Andy Scott actually had to retire from playing because he had a, a cardiac episode on the pitch. Our sponsor at Brentford at the time on the back of our shorts was Cardiac Risk in the Young. So it was a huge sort of a huge awareness around it at Brentford. Um, but that was when I, I got scanned and seen then and I was told, look, you know, this shouldn't affect your career. Um, keep getting regular scans. And it wasn't actually that issue. It was something that developed afterwards, which which stopped me from playing. But I looked back afterwards and yeah, you know, part of me did probably feel sorry for myself at times in that next year that followed. But part of me also was like, you know what, 
this could have been flagged up and I could have had to retire at 16 and, and never have experienced anything, you know, that I managed to do in my career. So I was grateful that I got, you know, 10 years as a, as a professional and yeah, it ended up being, and now I think I'm, I'm really grateful for the time that I had. What were the challenges after you stopped? Uh, yeah, quite a few. Um, I think at first it was a bit of a novelty. So from the age of eight, my whole life has been led up to a game at a weekend. Um, has been revolved around, you know, what I eat, what I drink, what I do. My routine is all football. And then when that's taken away, I think the routine was, was really difficult. Um, finding out what I was going to do next, overthinking massively. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on it later on, but I, I struggled with alcohol and I'd never been a, a big drinker at all in my career really disciplined I talked about that time at Welling you know I don't think I touched a drop in that in that 18 months I was at Welling um but when I came out I was like you know what I'm overthinking quite a bit I'll have a couple of beers in the evening and that seemed to calm me down a bit it seemed to let me drift off a little bit into my own little world and those two beers in the evening became you know four or five and five and six and and that ended up being a struggle and you know I'm, I'm almost a year sober now but that was, that was something completely took me by surprise and took a lot of people that I know by surprise. Um, but I just think that identity, you know, I'd always been known as, from the age of eight, the kid that plays for Chelsea or the footballer. And even in my own family, it was, I'd go to a family party and my brother who didn't play football would get asked all manner of questions. And I'd just be asked, you know, what's the score at the weekend? How much money are you earning? What's he like? What's, what's this manager like? And it was, everything was football, football, football. So when you come out and you haven't got that, and it's interesting, the name of your podcast, because I, I felt like I did put on a mask um, near enough every time I went into a training ground, um, you know, for a large part of my career. So you come out and you actually probably have a bit of a, an identity crisis and you think, you know what, who am I without football? So I think those elements there were, were two of the biggest struggles I had. I think it's a real key driver. And we've, we've spoken about it quite at length before, but... That meaning and purpose piece is something that you're driven to as a kid. Do you find that? I mean, we're all like that as, as sports individuals. I think you're driven by, you know, the meaning and purpose is the sport you do. That's it. And you don't really spend any time or a lot of time actually identifying and finding out who you are. And that's what I felt when I left. It probably took me, to Andy, it probably took me about five years, Fraser, to actually try and work out who I was as a person because I was known as a footballer. That's what I was. You just absolutely brilliantly said every party you go to, you walk down the street, that's who you are. That's what you are. And that's all you think, how I felt myself. It's all I actually thought I was, mm -hmm. but there were so many different elements to me. I've never ever worked that out before, but uh, it's interesting. So I don't know what your thoughts are around it. And cause I had a real struggle with that. That was, the, that was the black hole moment for me, yeah. just trying to work out not just where I'm going, but actually who I am. And I yeah. don't know if that was part of your problem. Uh, exactly that. Um, I went to, I, I quickly went on a PFA course, um, a university course, and it was full of ex-footballers. And they said to you at first to stand up and do a sort of ice-breaking introduction. You had to stand up and you had to say something interesting about yourself without mentioning football or your family. And I probably quickly realised that Without that, I'm struggling. And this was only a few, a couple of months after I retired. So being a footballer was probably the most interesting thing about me or the only thing I'd really explored because 
I'd go home and I'd watch football. I'd analyse football. I'd think about football. I didn't have many other interests. Um, I didn't plan a great deal outside of the game. I thought I'd always be involved in football. Um, so when I couldn't stand up and talk about that, my go-to would probably be my little girl and being a dad. And then I couldn't talk about that. So it was like, oh, no, like what, what? I'm struggling here. And that, that hit me quite a bit. So I was like, you know what? I need to start finding out who I am as a person. Um, I don't think I separated the player from the person throughout my career. And I think that's why I was quite inconsistent, if I'm honest. You know, if, if I had a bad game or we'd lost, it was the end of the world. And I weren't speaking to anyone. I felt like I was a failure. I felt like I'd let people down. Um, and I couldn't separate. I couldn't go home and switch off. Um, and again, if we won... It was more relief and it was like, oh, I actually feel like I'm a decent bloke now. I feel like I'm, I'm a good person. And it was, it's mad when you think of it, but my whole, my whole life just revolved around that performance and it was so up and down and I was so emotional with results and performances and really driven, um, which, which probably drove me on at times as well, but it equally brought me, brought me crashing back down. But no, I, I, everything that you've touched on there, I, I really struggled with in the first year, especially. You talked about obviously the drinking escalating. When and how did you realise that, that that was something that was becoming a problem and, and needed to be dealt with? Uh, relatively quickly, but not quickly enough for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was really inconsistent. And I think I've, I've looked into this quite a lot and I wasn't someone that drank every day at all. So that wasn't, I wasn't waking up and drinking in the morning I wasn't drinking seven days a week. I wasn't getting paralytic every time I had a drink, but just felt like I was making poor decisions. I was making mistakes more often than not. Um, if I'd, I'd drink on a Thursday night and have a few at home, or and it, this, this was the thing for me as well. It wasn't a social thing. I just wanted to drink on my own. Um, I wanted to sit on the sofa, let everyone else go to bed and just have my time where I just sit there, switch off, I'd just become a dad. So I felt like all oh, every hour I was trying to do something and I had no time for myself. And that was my time. Um, but if I had a few on a Thursday, probably lead into a Friday, Saturday and Sunday, because I'd never been able to do that before. Um, and then I've got a really strong wife and, you know, she started noticing that I was drinking too much at home. And she'd, she'd be that nagging voice that I didn't want to hear at the time. So she'd be like, are you opening another one? Or come on, it's, it's a Monday night, do you need a beer? So then I'd start hiding it because um, I didn't want her to know how much I was drinking or didn't want her to see me drink. I didn't want to disappoint her. So you start, when you start lying and hiding about it, you start, you know, not feeling great and asking yourself questions and felt like my fitness had gone a bit. I'd let my body go a little bit and just felt like I started feeling sorry for myself um, a bit more. And yeah, just a whole host of things just, compounded and compounded and I just found that you know if I if all my problems are coming down to alcohol here so if I can try and eliminate that hopefully I'll you know I'll feel better and at first I didn't want to be sober because I'd always associated being sober with being boring um, and I felt like it was going to be a lesser life for me but I found yeah I found it to be an absolute game changer for me absolute life changer all those things I've been searching for um, in terms of being authentic and my identity and stuff like that. I, I started to find it because I felt really confident when I had a drink, but without it, I felt absolutely no confidence and I couldn't work it out. And then when you eliminate alcohol, you have to start, you know, 
going out of your comfort zone a little bit and trying to do things sober, whether that's talking to people, whether it's going to a wedding or on holiday or, you know, whatever it might be. But I just found removing that just gave me consistency. I started to feel better about myself, my body. I started, it's, that led into being a better dad, a better, you know, better in my work. And yeah, it just, it just completely changed my life. So that, that was a huge thing for me. And yeah, I'm coming up to a year sober next month. What else helped you to sort of obviously after playing, you know, there's a bit of a descent, things are, things are difficult. What else helped you to sort of drag yourself up the other side and, and start looking upwards again? I, I have a lot of players now that will speak to me because I, I share quite a bit on social media, but players that are coming out of the game, I've had two quite close friends that have retired this summer. Um, I, I honestly think carrying on training is one of the most important things. Um, you know, you've spent your whole life keeping yourself in good physical condition when you start declining that and you start looking in the mirror and you start not feeling great about yourself you start eating the wrong things and drinking the wrong things and just falling into that narrative that you know you are told you know once football's finished that's it you go and enjoy yourself and let yourself go and it doesn't I, I, I found that it doesn't work like that and I think if you can keep yourself ticking you don't have to go mad but keep training keep ticking yourself over and Another one for me is is um, just trying to keep as busy as you can. Use that network that you've created in football. Use those transferable skills because there are so many that people don't realise. There are so many industries that are crying out for, you know, elite sports people, um, you know, to come in and, and to change things up. And I think a lot of players, um, you know, are fearful of retirement. They're fearful of stepping away from the game. They feel like football's all they know, so they have to take a you know coaching role but they don't actually want to be a coach or they have to take, um, you know, some kind of role in football to, to keep himself in it. But I think, I think expanding your mindset and knowing that there's a big wide world out there, there's loads of opportunities. And, you know, you are so young when you retire. I don't think you realize how much football ages you at times. And if you look in the, in the media, you look at someone like James Milner, who's, I think he's 35, seen as ancient in football. You put him in an office and he's like a young lad. And it's, it's, it's recognising that, that, you know, you're not old. It can be the, the start of an unbelievable life. And yeah, using all those experiences that you've gained in football um, to use afterwards is, is invaluable. Yeah, just looking back over um, how you've kind of laid that out. I, I think a big part of it, do you look back and think, I wish I'd planned through it a little bit more. I wish I'd, I'd, I'd taken a little bit more interest in my, my self-preservation within it. Because I think, you know, as I said, I found myself not having any self-preservation at all, really, up yeah. until that point where everything just collapses. So just rolling it back, do you think, how important do you think it, it probably is to, to look at yourself and plan through and um, do you regret that or is is that just part of the process you think you've been through yeah I, I just wish I'd have taken more of an interest in things um I felt like I was so consumed by football things like personal development and just like reading books or looking at different sports or different businesses and talking to people that aren't footballers because I, I found that I look back and all my mates were footballers, so it's all we spoke about or all we did was our little bubble and didn't really look at, didn't really take an interest in that side of it, if I'm honest. Um, got my B licence when I was 24, I think, and just ticked that off and thought, you know what, I'll become a coach. Um, yeah, I was quite lazy in, in planning for after football. I think I always had in my head when I'm maybe 
33, 34, I'll drop back to part-time, earn, you know, a few hundred quid a week or whatever it might be. That can be my transition into doing that a couple of nights a week and, and then find out what I'm going to do next. And I think every year worrying about it a little bit more. I always remember being petrified of the end of my career, you know, players talk and you say, what are you going to do after? No one really had a clue when, when I was talking to people. Um, so you are worried about it year on year, it's creeping up. Um, but year on year, you just put it off for another year and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to focus on football. I'm going to do this season or worry about this year and then I'll do it next year. But yeah, I just wish I'd have taken a bit more interest in other things and, you know, the whole personal development side, just looked at who I was. And if I look at some of the stuff I do now, yeah, I, I think I'd have been a much better player as well as a better person, you know, at the time. Sports one of those rare industries that 95% of people don't retire, they are retired. And that is the, the, the difference with, with so many other people and, and, and their journey through work. Just talk us about some of the things you, you, you have been doing in the past, the past couple of years, work-wise, having moved on. Yeah, I, even that word retirement, it's like you say it to someone else in a different industry and say, oh, I've retired. And they're like, you're only, how old are you? And that it's like that old age sort of connotation with the word retirement. But... Yeah, I, so I came out of, of football and, and as I said, I was worrying about what I was going to do next. And I say, I say I got really lucky, but I also, you also make your own luck because throughout my career, even at Chelsea, I was never the best player, but my attitude was always really good. I always wanted to work. I always wanted to listen. I always sort of did extra. I was always trying to be better and look after people and be seen as sort of a good person as well as a good player. Um and I always kept in touch with, with good people as well. And I think that's really important in football. Um, I never burnt any bridges, even if, you know, I was at a club and they maybe didn't treat me how I wanted to be treated. I never sort of wanted to be bitter or anything like that. Um, and when I retired, I was living in Newport at the time. Um, and I made, a, I made a sort of decision in hospital that I was going to contact near enough everyone in my phone book and try and get into as many football clubs as I could just to see what went on behind the scenes because at the level I played at League 2 you had a you know you had a physio first team coach kit man about five members of staff in the building but you go up to a Premier League club and you've got 50 members of staff so I wanted to know you know what jobs there might be in football what I was good at what I could do so I just spent the first couple of weeks and it really helped because I got a bit of coverage in the way that I retired. So I was on Sky Sports News and, and things like that. So that helped me. I had people reaching out to me saying, you know, if you need any help. Um, and I was really proactive, which I'm really glad about. And I went into different clubs. I knew an analyst um, at Bristol City. So I went into Bristol City, um, just had a look around the training ground. Um, they introduced me to Lee Johnson. I had a good chat with Lee Johnson and he came away and he said, you know what, I really like some of your thoughts, what you've said there. And you see things a little bit differently introduced me to uh, the, the uh, chief scout and it just so happened that one of their first team scouts had um, resigned that day and he said right you can come in I can't pay you but you can come in and get a bit of experience until the end of the season as a scout if you want so I went in and did that and you know I'm still working for Bristol City now part-time and um, three years on so you know using my network and trying to get into different places ended up an opportunity came up um, so I always think that's really important for players coming up the game. And then sort of the same thing happened at Chelsea and how I've got, you know, my business now. I 
contacted Chelsea straight away. Um, you know, people talk about aftercare policies and things like that. And Chelsea, you know, I, I left there 15 years ago by the time I'd retired. But I still knew Neil Bath, the academy manager, <clears throat> um, loads of members of staff. I, I had played with coming through the academy, so the likes of Joe Edwards, who's Frank Lampard's assistant. Ed Brand is the youth team manager. Um, Jack Francis is the head of player care. So I, I contacted them when I was in hospital and they said, look, soon as you're out, if you have to retire, come in. We'll send you on courses. We'll introduce you to people. Um, so Jim Fraser there put me on a... Uh, scouting course so I needed that qualification eventually to get my job at Bristol City um, then they introduced me to a guy called Matt Hemsworth who they used for education in their academy and again long story short um, got on really well with Matt loved his sort of values and what he brought to the academy he worked with near enough every Premier League club in different aspects he's a media lawyer um, but we've now expanded and gone into business together worked with a number of Premier League and Championship and you know, different, uh, different sports, cricket, rugby, the WSL, delivering an education program. So it's gone from, you know, using that network, being slightly lucky, being in the right place at the right time. But I, I look back and I, th I feel like, and I try and get across to academy players now, even if you're not the best player, if you're a good person, you're a good lad, these clubs will want to help you. But if you're going in and you've not got the right attitude and you're, you know, you're sacking it off and you're being disrespectful when you need a club's help or you're looking for something in the future are, is that club going to go above and beyond to help you out you know that's that's ultimately it because they've only they've only got you know a certain amount of resources they can't help every single person but you know if you're a good person that you know a club will always want to help you out and yeah they, Chelsea have been brilliant with me and yeah, those are two areas that, that I've gone into now and the alcohol-free world has, has opened up a, a whole manner of new ones. So, yeah, there's a lot a lot going on. There's still a lot of uncertainty. I've got no idea what it's going to look like going forward, but I'm not as fearful as that anymore. I'm quite excited about it. Have you set yourself goals going forward? Uh, I have, yeah, but not nothing too specific. You know, I wouldn't know in five years' time what I'm going to be doing, where I'm going to be doing it. But again, there's... Well, probably when I was drinking and I had that big cloud over me, I saw no light at the end of the tunnel. I thought my best days are behind me. Nothing's ever going to, you know, nothing's ever going to be as good as what I've done in football. Um, nothing's ever going to be as exciting. I'm never going to have that sort of proud to say, you know what, you know, when someone says, what do you do for a living? I go, I'm a footballer. Just rolled off the tongue. And when I wasn't a footballer, it was like, uh, well, I do a little bit of this. I do, I do that. And I was almost a little bit embarrassed to say it. But now I look at it and I'm like, there's so many opportunities out there. Um, and, you know, it might, you know, my, I'm not saying that that's going to be it forever. But, you know, I'll have bad days, I'll be up and down. But at the minute, that's how I see it. I see a world of opportunities. There's different people like, you know, yourselves that I want to talk to and, you know, hopefully want to be involved in. But, yeah, I see, I see a, lot, a lot of opportunities. And, yeah, I didn't see that when I was sort of in my drinking height. So part of the, the process that we're building in the SEA program, you know a little bit about that because you, you and Andy Ramage, one of our directors, is well linked. Now you've been doing a bit of AF work with Andy along the way, but you understand the process of, um, you know, the, the essence of trying to build a community that's there to help and support and lead through. Uh, Fraze, we've talked about you maybe being interested in coming on the pilot and stuff, but 
it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? When when do you start it? You said something really interesting in what you spoke about and said, I kept parking it every year. I kept parking it. And that's the one thing we've always found. People just park it all the time because you just don't want to think about it. But the idea, if we can build a community and support network and a team and bring the city together, as you said, all these all these jobs, all these communities where people want to help and support. And he actually ran a brokerage and he, he employed athletes. That's what he did. So I think trying to bring all those together is, is a real big implementation. But the interesting part for me that you've, you've hit on is I kept parking it. So I, the point I suppose I'm trying to make is you're probably never too young to start any of this process. And that's why you're going into the academy kids now to try and give them that mental awareness that, it could be happening but I speak to senior pros that's where you know I was an academy manager for 20 years but uh, talking to the senior pros up and down so many times I've got the same thing I don't know I don't know I don't know I'm not sure and I just think trying to build that community between us it's, you know sports people looking after sports people yeah. I think there's a nice safety network within that that you can help and, and drive so yeah just interested to know what your thoughts are on when you think you should start really yeah, I, I would say as early as possible. And you don't have to do anything mad, I don't think. It's what I try and get across to some of the boys. You don't, it doesn't mean going and doing a university degree at 18 and starting your own business or whatever it might be. Just, just being curious, start asking, you know, if you're a young lad in an academy and you want to stay in the game, start finding out things. Start asking the sports scientist what, what he's done or start asking coaches or CEOs or some of your sponsors and stuff like that start becoming interested that way um, and when you when you when a lot of the boys say oh, I just want to focus on football actually saying right talk to me about what that looks like because you're finishing at one o'clock and you're going home and you're sitting on your playstation for eight hours so how's how's that focusing on football but doing this isn't so I think it's it's just it's a little bit of lazy thinking, but you know, I know what I was like as a young lad as well. You want to enjoy being a footballer. You get free time. Sometimes you might have to make mistakes along the way to then find your path. But I think it's just changing the narrative. And I think it has to come from within at the club as well. And the coaching staff there can start, you know, playing a big part in that because yeah, if it's, if a coach is on board and the club are on board, it makes it a lot easier for players. Um, and again, you know, I, I, as I said before, I think it would have made me a better player. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of young lads want to be better players. And that's probably a selling point. You're saying, look, this is something healthy that you can do away from football that will, you know, let you switch off. It will let you be someone different. It'll let you find out about yourself. You've got stuff that you can learn here or talk about here that's different away from football. You know, if that can help your performance by 1%, 5%, that could be a way of selling it. And then I think, yeah, making it, you know, making it attractive for people. I think where the PFA have got it wrong in years gone by is they've gone in and said, right, here's a plumbing course, here's an electrician course. And as a young lad, I didn't want to hear that at 18, wanting to be a, a footballer, you know, but, but seeing people like Andy, you know, Andy Ramage that we've spoken about there, who's gone on and had huge success or other footballers that have got real great businesses or great lifestyles or, you know, transferred great skills into a completely different career, using those as examples and making it attractive for the boys, I think is, is really important. I put the other guys on the spot in our first episode. I'm going to do the same with you. Um, there's a final question. The one bit of advice you wish you'd have known when you were 18. Uh, 
One bit of advice, I'd probably just say be curious. Um, I say it a lot to, to, the, to the young players that I work with, just being curious, start asking questions, start finding out who you are as a person. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's really important and trying to separate that, you know, the identity from being a from the player and the person. You know, how would, I've used this example before, but how would your nan describe you? Or how would your, my little girl describe me? I would describe myself as a centre-back that plays for such and such. She, she describes me in a completely different way, all the different personality traits that I've got. So I try and get that across to some of the boys. You know, you're not just the centre-half that plays for Norwich. You are this, you're that. And, you know, finding out those different elements of your personality, I think, is, uh, yeah, really important. Well, I think we're going to wrap up this episode of Behind the Mask. An absolutely massive thank you to Fraser Franks for his time and for myself, Andy Moon and Mark Kelly. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from as there'll be more episodes coming as the series goes on and more chances to hear the fascinating stories like we've heard from Fraser today. Thank you very much for listening.